Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Romans chapter 3 in particularly verse 21. Over the last couple of months, we've walked through a really systematic disarming of the Jewish people. Um, Paul, as he makes his way through Romans chapter 2, and really even going back into Romans chapter 1, reminds us that we all stand with empty hands. The, the Gentiles have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. The Jews as well have done that very thing by creating for themselves idols made after their own image, or by abusing and misusing the gifts that God has given them. But essentially what we find at the end of this narrative or at the end of this argument that Paul is making is everyone is left standing empty-handed. There really does seem to be a disarming of hope. Um, that, that false hope that would be placed in perhaps various activities or in birthright or in law given or in some external sign. And if we were to go through the Old Testament, I think one of the easiest ways to, to articulate this is if we were to go back and to look at Adam, we, see, we would see Adam fall and immediately there is something that catches Adam after he falls. And what catches him is that God in his grace kills an animal and clothes Adam with skins. What essentially Paul has done is taken the story of Adam and Eve's fall and removed the clothing of skin. They stand there covered in fig leaves. And brothers and sisters, if God in his grace did not cover Adam's sin and trespass and clothe him, he would, left, he would be left standing there naked. Or we go perhaps to Noah's Ark. And in Noah's Ark, we see God give this blessed thing, this ark that was meant to deliver them from this wrath to come. But really interesting language is given there. That same word for covering that we find in Genesis chapter 3 is there's this word pitch. And pitch was this tarry, stu- tarry substance that was used to cover the ark to make sure that not a single drop of water would enter in. So what Paul has essentially done is taken the pitch away from the ark. There is nothing to cover. And if there's nothing to cover, brothers and sisters, I can tell you with great confidence, Noah would have died in a watery grave. Or going a bit further, we could look at the story of Passover. And in Passover, God tells them there is this blood that you can place on your doorpost. And if you place this on your doorpost, then there will certainly be a passing over of your house and your firstborn will not die. What Paul has essentially done in Romans chapter 2 is say, there is no blood. If you place your hope in these things, there is no hope. Your firstborn will die. Going a bit further... We see the law of God given and the law of God declaring judgment, declaring wrath and fury. What Paul has done is essentially say, here is the law and he has removed the sacrifices, which means that man must die. To place it in the immediate context, standing before God without righteousness means eternal death. Paul has disarmed, he has removed all external sources of righteousness. He has told the Jewish people that if you do not have the righteousness of God, you are like Adam without God clothing you with the skins of animal. If you do not have the righteousness of God, then you are like those at Passover who did not place blood on the doorpost. If you do not have the righteousness of God, then you are in Noah's ark with no true covering and the waters will prevail against you. 
He has placed them in a position of despair. He tells them that if you stand before God on the day of judgment without his righteousness, then there will be nothing more for you than tribulation and distress and wrath and fury. And this is the position that Paul has placed, not just the Jewish people, but every human being. He has laid them low to see that they are needy. And then there is this beautiful turn. And I need to remind us of the position that we should be in as we're reading this because we have taken it rather slowly. But as you come to this, if we remember everything that Paul has argued up until this point, that there's none righteous, that if I stand before God based upon my own righteousness, I have no righteousness at all. And he will cast me away into the lake of fire. But there's this beautiful turn. And in this beautiful turn of Romans 3.21, we have perhaps one of the most blessed verses in all of Scripture, especially if you understand the context. He has disarmed, he has dismembered all, all sources of righteousness that might come from within. He tells them there is no means of hope. Verse 20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The only thing that the Jews clung to for their righteousness was this law. And Paul looks at them and says, All it does is increase your trespass. And with that position, we turn to the text this morning. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, what blessed hope. What blessed hope that we stand here unrighteous altogether, but by your grace you have declared us righteous. Not righteous in some arbitrary way, but you have given us the righteousness of God. And so, Father, as we come, would you remind us of our fallen natural state so that we might savor the righteousness of God and never profane it by giving any additive, but that you would cause in us just a great rejoicing and a, and a rejoicing and resting underneath this righteousness that has been provided for us in Christ. So, Father, we ask that you would do this for us, that you would apply these truths to us. And, Lord, if there be any here who think that they can muster up their own, would you show them the despair of that reality so that they might taste the glory of the gospel, the righteousness of God provided. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we turn our attention to this verse, I I think that really what you have in Romans chapter 3 verse 21 is the end of a very, very dark night. I'm reminded of that great phrase, this Latin phrase, post tenebris lux, after darkness, light. And here we have this very thing. After a series of great darkness of Paul looking over all of these people and showing them their own depravity, their own wickedness, the sun rises and all of a sudden there is this great burst of light that there is hope because there is the gospel. 
And as we come to this, it is important that we understand the hope that is provided. What is that animal skin that clothed Adam? What is that pitch that covered the ark that no water might enter? What was that blood of the lamb that covered during Passover? Brothers and sisters, what we find in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 is that very substance. All of those things that we looked at were shadows, they were figures, they were meant to point us ahead. And this day we have the grand privilege of looking at the substance of those things. And so let's turn our attention to this phrase that we find in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. I wish that I could articulate effectively the true magnitude of the righteousness of God. I'm going to do my best this day, but I will confess to you that I will likely fail. Because I am arguing for something that is perfect altogether. It is lovely, it is beautiful, it is the paramount of glory. And I fear that man's words will ultimately fail in presenting it. But if I could, I want to give some attempt. First, when we understand the righteousness of God, we must understand that it is first and foremost God's righteousness. Oftentimes, when we look at the word righteousness, we want, to, we want to provide some modifier to it. We want to perhaps say a perfect righteousness or a holy righteousness or a loving righteousness. But I think the most perfect modifier is it is God's righteousness. That means that it is not just detached from him. It is not just some moral standard of perfection, but it is something that is manifested in God. It is his. He owns it, which means that all of those glorious attributes that we consider when we think about God, when we think and meditate upon the theology proper, understanding who God is, must be prescribed also to his righteousness. It is a loving righteousness. It is a holy righteousness. It is an immutable righteousness. Ultimately, we must say that it is a perfect righteousness. Now, we don't understand the word perfect anymore because we say it of things like roast that we had the other day. Brothers and sisters, you've never had a perfect roast. You've never had a perfect meal because it can always be improved upon and it can always certainly fall. It can always not be as good as it once was. It is not so with God's righteousness. And if I could, two major thoughts in regard to that. First, it cannot be diminished. God's righteousness cannot be diminished nor drained. And I think drained is perhaps the best way to think about this. Consider for a moment that this righteousness of God, that God's righteousness, clothes every single saint. That means that multitude without number that gathers around the throne of God that sings his praise eternally, that every single one of those souls is clothed with the righteousness of God. And brothers and sisters, the righteousness of God is not at a loss for clothing so many. It is a righteousness that is perfect. It is a righteousness that is pure. And it is a righteousness that cannot be diminished nor drained. When it clothes a new believer, when someone comes and says, I've trusted in Christ, I've repented of my sin, I rest on Christ and Christ alone, you have not lost any of your righteousness by God clothing another. It is a perfect righteousness. It cannot be diminished. And I think maybe one of the best illustrations for this is Jesus touching the leper. When Jesus reaches out to touch another, when Jesus reaches out to touch one who would make everybody in the room unclean, Jesus does not become unclean. The leper becomes clean. He inverts this whole concept that when the glory of God, the righteousness of God comes, the cleanness, the purity, the holiness of God enters in, he will not ever be corrupted. Instead, he purifies all that he touches. This righteousness of God cannot be diminished. And if he were to go out into all the world and cleanse every unclean person by the law's measurements, he would still be just as clean. He would still be just as righteous. We would simply have people who have been cleansed by the righteousness of God. 
That as he goes forth and as he touches every single individual whom he heals, he is not diminished in his glory or his righteousness. They are made whole. Now, let's consider this perhaps in a more spiritual sense. Because, brothers and sisters, what must take place for the righteousness of God to be applied to us is that the Lord Jesus would come and reside within us. I do not know about you, but I know of my own heart. Romans 3 tells me that I am not righteous, that I do not understand, that I do not seek for God, that I've turned aside. Together I have become worthless. And then Christ comes to reside within me, and he is not made corrupt. I am made holy. This is the righteousness of God displayed. This righteousness of God that is so magnificent, so pure, that it can reside in a rebel heart like mine and not be corrupted, but instead make me whole. This is the righteousness of God. It cannot be diminished. It cannot be drained. But should we go further, it cannot be made more righteous. Now, this is one that I think we often overlook. Certainly, we can examine, yes, I know my wickedness. I know my depravity. And as he enters in, he cleanses. But brothers and sisters, out of all of our duties and all of our labors and all of our works, we will not make the righteousness of God more righteous. I think of even the blessed ordinances that God has given to the church. Brothers and sisters, your baptism does not increase the righteousness of God. When you come to the table and you drink of that cup and you eat of that bread, you have added nothing to the righteousness of Christ. He has simply revealed deeper glories of it. It matters not how hard I labor and how how laborsome every task that I do and aim to glorify God. I will not ever add to his righteousness. Yes, by his grace, I will worship in the light of it and that he will work out my salvation with fear and trembling but I have not added to that perfect righteousness of Christ because it is indeed a perfect righteousness. It cannot be made better. It is a righteousness that is pure and holy and yes, indeed, perfect. And then we go further. It's not just that it can't be diminished or drained. It cannot be made more righteous. But I love what Isaiah says in Isaiah 51, 7 through 8. He says that it is an eternal righteousness. Listen to the language here. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them up like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. It is an eternal righteousness. Consider for a moment our father Adam. He could not do it temporarily. He tried. We do not know the expanse of that time, but brothers and sisters, I would actually argue it was rather brief. Adam could not maintain a righteousness for a moment. And the eternal God maintains an eternal righteousness for all those who believe in him. This righteousness of God, that God's righteousness, it is perfect altogether. It is eternal. And next thing we must understand about this is that it is not only the righteousness of God, but the language that we see in Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The whole concept is that it is a righteousness not only of God, but it is a righteousness from God. It is a righteousness bestowed. It is a righteousness given. And the reason that this is the break of dawn in Romans is because at this point, up to this point, Paul's whole premise is to show that there is no righteousness. And then Paul turns the corner and says, ah, but there is one. 
There is one righteousness, and this righteousness is infinitely better than anything that you can muster because it is not subject to change or variation. It is a perfect righteousness that is not only perfect temporarily, but perfect eternally. And that's the righteousness that's necessary for salvation. And praise be to God, that's the righteousness that he gives. That's the only righteousness that he offers. And I want you to understand this, brothers and sisters, because when we see this, we must understand that the righteousness of God, God's righteousness, is what is required to enter into paradise, to enter into that blessed heaven with Christ. Apart from God's righteousness, no man will dwell there. But praise be to God, that's the righteousness that he bestows. Now, if I could for a moment make a brief application, I'm convinced that we think far too little of the righteousness that God has provided for us. I thought as I was laboring in this text, ah, it's the righteousness of God. Can that really be what he gives? Something so magnificent, clothing the saint. Is that the righteousness? Is there a lesser righteousness that he gives? Brothers and sisters, no. There is no lesser righteousness that God offers. Now, here's what's so magnificent about that. When we see someone converted, when God, by his grace, applies justification, yes, certainly we see that their sins are forgiven. Praise be to God. But when they are clothed, they are clothed not with some arbitrary righteousness, but they are clothed with the righteousness of God. And I cannot make that more clear. It is a righteousness that is alien, but it is a righteousness that is perfect. It is God's own righteousness that clothes the elect. And if that does not thrill your soul, then I have nothing else for you. Because this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the paramount. This is the thing that we often overlook because it is indeed far too marvelous for us to grasp or even to proclaim. It is God's own righteousness that he bestows. Now, what of this righteousness? Because Paul does go on to articulate how how we should understand what this righteousness is doing in verse 21. So we see that this righteousness is a manifested righteousness. Romans chapter 3 verse 21 again says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And I do think there is this very important word, this transition language in but now. What has changed? What has changed? We read through Romans chapter 2 and you see all this language of justification based upon their works. Well, that won't work. Justification based upon their birth, that's not going to work. And justification based upon some external sign, but they don't have the inward sign, so that certainly won't work. And so what is the but now? What has changed? What has manifested this righteousness of God? It wasn't the law. So what was it? It has been manifested in Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, verse 16 gives a brief summary of what it means for this manifestation to occur. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. What is the manifestation of the righteousness of God? It is the manifestation, the incarnation of the Son. And not only in his incarnation, but in his perfect work. Every single act, deed, thought, affection was perfectly holy and righteous to such a degree that the righteousness that Jesus accomplished here can and must rightly be called the righteousness of God. Perfect righteousness. 
2 Timothy 1.8 goes on to say this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in sufferings for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose of grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Listen to this language. Before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Here is the blessed reality. Though it had not yet been manifested, the saints of God had already been placed there. When you look at this language, he gave it to us in Jesus Christ before the ages began. The Old Testament heralded it, and then in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus Christ came, and the manifestation of the righteousness of God arrived. It has been manifested, and it has been manifested in Jesus Christ. But here is what is rather interesting. Paul also says that it is manifested in one other way. It is not apart from Christ, but it is instead the ramifications of the born-again believer. What is it that we go on doing? What is it that we ultimately go forth proclaiming? We go forth proclaiming the gospel. And oftentimes we alter the understanding of the gospel, but what we know is this. The gospel is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is Him dead for our trespasses and sins. It is Him buried to carry them away, and it is Him raised for our justification. That is the proclamation of the gospel, and it is a way in which it can continues to be manifested today and should we need a reference for this Romans chapter 1 verse 17 that verse that really is the linchpin of all of Romans for in it in the gospel of God the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith apart from God and his infinite grace condescending and manifesting the righteousness of God to us in his blessed son, we would go around groping for a righteousness of our own only to grab hold of death. But by his grace, he was incarnate. When we read Philippians chapter 2, those, that early hymn of the church, he took on the form of a servant so that we could see him, so that we could lay eyes on him, so that we could behold the righteousness of God, so that he could show us the exact imprint of God, the radiance of his glory. He condescends that the righteousness of God might be manifested, but not only that it be manifested, but it be ultimately accomplished. He had promised from before the foundation of the world that he would do it. And in the fullness of time, Christ came and ultimately accomplished it. He actually did what he said, because brothers and sisters, God's saying is his doing. He comes manifesting the glory of God, manifesting the righteousness of God. And in this way, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Not only has it been manifested, but what's important to note is that this righteousness is also without the law. I want you to notice Romans chapter 3 verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now the language in the ESV, I think it could be more firm. Because essentially what's being argued here is that the righteousness that God provides is a righteousness that is without the law. It is without the law's help. Meaning that there is nothing in the law for us to do, to accomplish, to labor in, to produce the righteousness of God. And let's just consider the way that Paul has already argued this up to this point. 
First, we see that it is not dependent on birth. Paul looks at the Jewish people and says, oh, you presume upon your birth position that God will grant you some form of justification instead of actually seeing the kindness of God and being led to repentance. You presume on your birthright. Well, aren't you a lot like Esau? He says, no, it's not dependent on my birthright. There is this righteousness exists without the law. Praise be to God, because if it's dependent on my birthright, then I have no righteousness anyway. And it's not dependent upon perfect law keeping, because as he goes forth here, he's identified that there is no one who has perfectly kept the law. And if there's no one who's perfectly kept the law, then every single soul deserves wrath and fury, tribulation and distress, because no one longs for well-doing. It is a righteousness without the law. And it's not dependent upon external signs. Now you consider the hope, the boasting that was placed in circumcision given to the Jews. And they think, ah, this sign marks me. It indicates that I belong to God. But brothers and sisters, the righteousness that we see here is a righteousness that is a righteousness without the law. Meaning that if the law was never given, if circumcision was never offered, the righteousness of God would stand. Why? Because it is preeminent. It is a righteousness that was called into existence with our God. It is his righteousness. If it was another righteousness, then it would have had to have been birthed after him. But this righteousness of God that he bestows is, is, is crucial to his nature. It cannot be divorced from him. It is a preeminent righteousness altogether. And it was righteous before the law was given. And brothers and sisters, praise be to God that this righteousness is without the law. For if it needed any help from the law, we would all be damned. Because we can provide no help. Every time we go forth trying to add something, we're just adding salt to our drinking water. We're killing ourselves slowly. But I do think there's a couple of warnings here, and I think perhaps it is that this is far too frequent, or, or perhaps it's far too frequent in me. But it says, not only is this, righteousness, is this righteousness apart from the law, without the law, it also needs no help from it. But goodness, isn't it interesting how quickly we grab some reins to provide some aid. If I could give a brief warning of what this ultimately means, because self-righteousness is not a moral thing. It is wicked. Why is it wicked? It's wicked the same way that all other sins are wicked, because when we sin, we lie about who God is. And when we aim to provide some self-righteousness, as we aim maybe look to ourselves and say, oh, look at me, I've done everything right. Perhaps you find yourself like the rich young ruler who says, I've kept these all from my youth. Goodness gracious to stand before the omniscient one and proclaim that. But to say, and perhaps it was even he believed this, but if you go forth saying that I am righteous, then you are lying about who God is because you lie about his righteousness, assuming that you, a sinner, have have gained it yourself. Or perhaps it is that you would look at the righteousness of God and say, yes, it is good, it is lovely, it is excellent, like the Judaizers would. They would say, yes, you need the righteousness of Christ. And you would say, ah, but you also need circumcision. You also need good works. You also need whatever the need you might add is. It corrupts the righteousness of God altogether and essentially looks at his righteousness and say, ah, but it is an insufficient righteousness. To stand before God on the day of judgment and to offer him anything other than Christ and him crucified, hear me, this is what you will receive. Away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. 
Often we look at that verse and you find yourself trembling because it's like there's random chance there, but there is a very clear point to that text. Should you stand before God on the day of judgment and offer him your deeds, you will earn the reward for them. Tribulation and distress. This is a righteousness of God that is manifested apart from the law. And Paul essentially looks at every human being and says, this righteousness is complete, it is perfect, it is unaided, and it flows from God. And so you stand there silent because there is nothing for you to add. There is no, there is no help to give it. It is perfect. It has been perfect from eternity past. And by his grace, he has bestowed it upon you. And so if there is anything necessary in light of this righteousness bestowed, it is worship. Boast. We boast in the righteousness of God by denying our ability to add anything to it. Not only is this a righteousness that is manifested and it is a righteousness that is without the law, it is also a righteousness that was foretold by the law and the prophets. Looking again at Romans chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Let's consider the Old Testament narrative for a moment. We look at Genesis chapter 1, we see God create, and then going on, Genesis chapter 2, we see this rather unique articulation of God's creation of man and ultimately the giving of Eve, his wife, and then not verses later, man falls into trespass, sin, and iniquity. He believes the lies of Satan over the truths of God, and yet... As he denies those truths, as he falls, God in his grace covers Adam. This wicked man, this wicked rebel sinner, this one who has literally cast all of creation into despair and into death, God clothes. What did he clothe him with? It says animal skins, but... Brothers and sisters, I can tell you, based upon Hebrews, the blood of goats and bulls will not take away sin. And I can tell you also with great confidence, yes, Adam was naked when he was covered with fig leaves, but really, even these garments will wear out. Or what about Abraham? Abraham is called righteous, ultimately righteous by faith. But if we were to do just a brief examination of Abraham's life, I think we would be safe to call him wicked. How often did he lie and deceive and cheat? Multiple times we see this Abraham who is called righteous sin and rebel against God. So where is his righteousness? I mean, really, both of these narratives lead us to ask a question, really? The, 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 the skin of an animal clothes him? Or Abraham's just counted righteous by faith? Where does this righteousness have its origin? Or what even of the law should we look there? It essentially declares that man is guilty. Guilty altogether, but then there is this gleam of hope and this sacrificial system ultimately in the day of atonement that their sins would be forgiven. But again, Hebrews says the blood of goats and bulls cannot take away sin. Where is this forgiveness and what is its origin? Because it's not in the sacrificial system. What are the prophets? Over and over again, we recently looked at Jonah. Jonah goes forth a rebel sinner. He is a great illustration of Israel. He goes forth, he's grumbling, he's angry, he doesn't desire to offer the good things of God to another. He is wicked. And yet we see God still bestow hope, grace, and mercy to them. Where is its origin? Where is the grace, hope, and mercy? Because brothers and sisters, like, 
he goes forth proclaiming this, but it seems as though he truly believes there is hope. He even says that I will look to your holy temple as he is dead. So where is this? Ah, it's in the Gospels. You see, the prophets and the law heralded these things. And oftentimes they heralded them by showing that there is something here, but it's still coming. Consider for a moment this, the law. The law preached by justifying no one and condemning everyone. Matthew Henry said this, The law is so far from justifying us that it directs us to another way of justification. It is as if you went into the doctor's office and the doctor said, I cannot help you, and said, but I know this one who can. How quickly your feet should flee to that one who can provide. The law preached, and it preached loudly. It proclaimed, all is guilty of trespass, iniquity, and sin. And if you look to me for justification, you will not find it. Ah, but I will show you one who can. And as Christ arrives, the law looks at him and says, this is the righteous one. This is the one who is holy. This is the one who has in him the righteousness of God, a righteousness that supersedes that of the law. And the prophets bore witness. They bore witness by continuing to point toward the promised seed. They never forgot that verse. Genesis 3.15, I would argue, is the crux of the entirety of the Old Testament. It starts with this moment that there is one who will crush the head of the serpent. Isn't it interesting that as you get to Moses, there's not a mention of this seed. There's not a mention of the law being that which would crush the head of the serpent. There's certainly not a mention of the the sacrificial systems being the means by which the head of the serpent will be crushed. You go forth and you look at David. There's a covenant there, but that seed is still in the minds. They understood. Moses knew he was not the one who would crush the head of the serpent. You can imagine even as he placed that bronze staff in the sky, he knew that he was still coming. Or what of Aaron? Do you think Aaron thought that he was the one who would be the true priest, who would offer the sacrifice that would ultimately be the sacrifice of all sacrifices that would put sin to remission altogether? No, because every year he was reminded he was not him. He would go in again and again and again, and he would see that serpent's head was still whole. Or what of David? Do you think David, as he sat on that throne, thought to himself, this is my throne forever? Psalm 110 makes clear he did not. The Lord said to my Lord, he knew of the true king who was coming. Moses knew he was not the true prophet. Aaron knew he was not the true priest. And David knew he was not the true king. But what did they do? They searched and they inquired carefully, longing to know the person and work of Christ. This righteousness of God that was manifested apart from the law, the law screams and testifies to him to make him known that the day that he arrives would be like the gatekeeper who awaits the shepherd. When the gatekeepers see the shepherd comes, he says, that is him. He is John the Baptist who says, behold the lamb. So where is all of these? Where is Adam's covering? Where is Abraham's righteous? Where is the Passover lamb? Where is the hope of Israel? Brothers and sisters, it is in Christ and him crucified. And we have this blessed verse in Luke chapter 2. We have this last almost prophet. In Luke chapter 2, this man named Simeon who awaited this day and he knew that it would come. In Luke chapter 2 verse 29, it says, Lord, now as Christ enters the temple, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. 
because the prophets promised that this temple that Jesus entered into would have a greater glory than the previous temple. It's greater glory it's Christ manifested. It's Christ incarnate. And brothers and sisters, the glory that he brings will not be surpassed. We have this glory, this righteousness of God manifested in the law and the prophets. But not only that, and here's the gleam of hope because all of these things are incredibly true. As we work our way through this, we see this righteousness of God. It's apart from the law. It's manifested. It's been heralded from the law and the prophets. But brothers and sisters, I will tell you that as I make my way through those verses, I still don't see how those things benefit me. When do these things become most glorious and clear? When by faith you behold them. And apart from you beholding them by faith, you will see them. Perhaps it is that as you search the scriptures, you, your eyes may see that in Genesis chapter 22, it seems to articulate a forthcoming Christ. But when you look to him on the tree, apart from the work of the Spirit in you, you will see a dead man on a tree. But by the Spirit, when he gives you eyes to see, when that circumcision of heart occurs, when faith is born in you, you see the righteousness of God given to you. This is the dawning of the greatest glory when the circumcision of the heart gives you eyes to see and to behold that this righteousness of God is so clearly manifested but its clearest manifestation is in the fact that he takes ruined sinners and clothes them in this righteousness to such a degree that they are actually declared righteous but how do we lay hold of this so if we look at Romans 3.20, to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Because the question at this point is, how then can we be righteous before God? This righteousness of God that's been heralded, that's been proclaimed, how is it that I can have that before God? And what's most interesting about this is the righteousness of God is received by faith. And I'm convinced that we have often make faith a work, meaning that when we think about what we must do, that language of have faith is like this concept of me mustering something up within me. But that is most certainly not the case. Ephesians 2 reminds us that faith is a gift of God. And so what is it that we must bring? And I would articulate it this way, perhaps, that there is, very, there, there is nothing that we must do to be saved but there is much that God must do to save. Certainly, we will proclaim, we will shout, Abba, Father, as we sit in our chairs and rest under this righteousness of God that is only bestowed by faith. But brothers and sisters, he gives what is required and he accepts what he gives. He gives this faith born in us. And so how must we understand faith? Certainly we have this language from Hebrews 11 articulating it, that it's something that is it's hoping for something and being certain of something that is unseen. But I think perhaps the greatest way to understand it is faith is resting. Faith is resting. Faith is looking at the righteousness of God and saying it is sufficient. Faith is looking at the righteousness of God and saying it is complete, it is full, it is perfect. All I must do is sit under it and believe. All I must do is lean onto Christ in faith, knowing that he truly is stronger than the sweetest of frames. This righteousness of God is given only, hear me, only by faith. And you think, well, what does that look like in me? It looks like an abandonment of self. It looks like seeing yourself as that corrupt and ruined sinner, as we have said in the past, the first cry of the one who has been born again is, I am wicked and I deserve death. And his second is, but Christ saves. 
What is that faith? It's believing. It's resting under the righteousness of God that has been provided for us in Christ. Secondly, who is this righteousness for? Now, this is an important point in the context of the book of Romans because what you had in Rome were two very distinct people groups. You had Jew and Gentile, and in this very simple phrase, Paul unites them. He unites them as all people. He reminds the Jewish people that that promise that was given, even as Simeon said, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that promise was not only for them, but it was for the Gentiles as well. For brothers and sisters, as the prophet Isaiah said, it was far too light of a thing for him to just save Israel. He would make his glory known among the nations. And so it is not just for the Jewish people, but it is for all people. We go forth proclaiming the gospel that repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ will ultimately save But the other thing that we must see, and perhaps it is you were here this morning and you think, ah, what blessed news, hear me. That righteousness is only for those who believe. And so if you sit here today and you think, ah, yes, that righteousness is provided. It is provided for those who have repented and trusted in Christ. Hear me. If you think that you will get a free pass, if you think that this righteousness of God is so great, and brothers and sisters, it is, but it must be applied. And it is only applied by faith in Christ. There is no other entry. There is no other door. It is only applied by faith. Now that leads us to the conclusion. If this is the righteousness of God, if this is the beauty of the gospel for the saint, are you resting underneath this eternal righteousness? Or are you quick to add? Are you quick to think, ah, but I've done this and I've done this. Perhaps it is that you really do relate to that rich young ruler. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, put those things to death. Look to Christ. And as you look to Christ, see in him the righteousness of God by faith and rest. Rest underneath that glorious righteousness. And if you are here this day and you have not believed on him, know this. The proclamation of Romans 1 verses 18 all the way to this verse are true that there will be given to those who do not do good, to those who have done nothing but wickedness and rebelled against God, there will be tribulation and distress. It is only the righteousness of God that God rewards. You cannot manifest your own. The only reasonable response, and I do say reasonable response, is to flee to Christ and find in him a perfect Savior. Brothers and sisters, God has done what the law could not do. He counted us righteous not with some arbitrary righteousness, but with his own righteousness. You are clothed in the righteousness of God. What more is there to do? There is nothing to add. There's nothing to contribute. We are left only to worship. And I think 1 Corinthians 1.30-31 articulates not only the beauty of Christ, but also our most reasonable response. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we ask you to remind us of the righteousness of God that has been bestowed. Remind us that this righteousness of God is not a frail or lesser form of righteousness, but it is your righteousness. It is the righteousness of God. Lord, it is bestowed only by faith. Praise be to God that you give that faith, that you birth that in us. And Lord, may we be people who respond resting, who see the righteousness of God, and yes, it produces great fruit in our life. Yes, you work out our salvation with fear and trembling within us. 
But Lord, would you, by your grace, remind us that as we labor, we must be resting. We must be resting underneath the righteousness of God, and that in our resting underneath the righteousness of God, then our works are most suitable. For Father, we need not to add anything. May every labor that we do be born of trusting in the righteousness of God. And so, Father, this morning I ask you if it would be to your joy and delight, we ask that if there be any here who do not know you, that you would convict them of their sin, that you would show them that they do not possess the righteousness of God apart from you. Indeed, it cannot be possessed. But you are a good Savior, and all who come to you will know that you are indeed not just good, but the perfect Savior. Father, we ask, would you cause them to flee to you, Give them eyes to see and to behold the glory of God in Christ. And Lord, for us saints who have been born again, who have seen and beheld the righteousness of God, would you reveal it to us frequently as we turn in the scriptures to examine the word that you have given to us. Lord, may we often and always see the righteousness of God bestowed, the righteousness of God given, that we might labor not to be justified, but labor because we have been. So Father, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. It is in his name and through his blood we pray. Amen. This morning we ask you to do what we all.